Hey, Bring a Friend fam, a warning before you listen to this episode. This interview includes references to addiction and depression. Listener discretion is advised. If you need help, you can visit the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline at www.samhsa.gov. Help is available 24-7. Okay, AAA, I've got a riddle for you. Oh, what gosh. do Rod Stewart, Right Said Fred... Nicki Minaj and Beyonce all have in common. You had me at Nicki Minaj and Beyonce. I'm all, I'm all right with those two. What's up? Um, same. My answer to your question would be that they all <laughs> drop total bangers. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes. And they all recorded huge hits about feeling sexy. You know, oh. like, if you want my body oh, and gosh. you think I'm sexy, again. come on. Sorry. Okay. No, no, know. no. I thought we talked about no singing on this podcast. <laughs> You did. You talked about that. Let's leave the singing and songwriting to Nikki and Beyonce. Uh, but, Anne, I wonder what it feels like to have a career based totally on your sex appeal. I could not even imagine. It's actually much, much more controversial subject in the real world. That's so true. That's why I'm super excited about today's guest. She's actually had a 30-year career as a bombshell, and a I've got sexy one. so many questions about that. Oh, suffice. You know this topic is right up my alley, and I cannot <laughs> wait to hear her sexy story. This is Bring a Friend, a podcast where real people shine and where people who shine get real. These are conversations we usually have with our best friends, and now we're living them out loud with you. I'm Arielle Fuller. I'm Ann Devereaux Mills. And I'm Adamika Arthur. This guest is the epitome of vulnerability, radical self-acceptance, and telling it exactly like it is. We're going to live this one out loud. I'm Brandy Ledford, and I am a sober mom. I am an actress, and I love God. I am a wife, and I'm a foodie. I love to travel, and I, um, I love sushi. <laughs> I love sushi too. If I had to, if I had to pick my favorite cuisine, uh, it would be sushi for sure. Our friend, sure. the sushi eater. Woohoo! Our friend, the sushi eater. <laughs> so you know, it's so interesting how you the hierarchy that you use to frame yourself um, started with sobriety and started with motherhood, and yet mm -hmm. you're known for being one of the most beautiful women, you know, in front of the camera from. Baywatch to Modern Family to you name it. Tell us why that's your hierarchy. It's the most important. It's my primary purpose. You know, I do a gratitude list every morning and um, I send it out to my girlfriends. Wow. And the top two things, the number one thing is um, something relating to God. You know, so today it was um, God in my 12-step program. And then the second thing is I don't have to drink or use today no matter what or something related to sobriety. Because if I don't have my connection with my higher power and if I don't stay sober, being a mom and a wife is not my option. Mm. So it is the most important thing for me. You know, not many of us know your origin story of where, where you started, how you were discovered, how you began to act, and then where this, um, where this important piece of sobriety and motherhood and family fell into place for you. When I was a kid, uh, when I was in elementary school, I started on a dance team, a drill team. 
and I fell in love with dance and we stayed in the same team through high school. And there was a point when I wanted to be a professional dancer. I loved dance, mm. but I also wanted to be a model. And this is right when MTV was just starting. So there were no professional dancers in my group. I didn't know how to do that. So I thought, well, I can't be a dancer. So I'll do modeling. And I went to some uh, uh, elite modeling agency in John Casablanca's modeling school. And at that time, I was too... Um, I wasn't tall enough, and I was very curvy and sexy, and it wasn't what they were looking for. Um, so I got into full-figure modeling, um, which is what I thought I had was a full-figure because I was really curvy, but that actually meant nude modeling. So full-figure mm. modeling meant nude modeling? Yeah, that's what they meant. Industry code. Oh, it, okay. Damn. In, yeah. So it wasn't yeah. plus size. It was minus clothes. I, at that time, decided it would be okay. So actually, I got into nude modeling because I really wanted to be a model. But you were so young. I was so young, and I yeah. didn't have the direction that I um, wished I had. But I did have a really open mind, so I went with it, and I was getting really successful um, in that field. Weren't you a penthouse model or something? I mean, you did really well. Playboy, like head of the year or something like that, right? Something. Yeah, Yeah, I was. That was was, um, the top. Um, And there was a point in the middle of my contract, I was traveling around the world, um, you know, meeting advertisers and representing as an ambassador to the magazine. And there was a point when I was standing in line. Turkey had just... um, uh, allowed the magazine to legally be in their country. Communism was falling, and they asked me out. And so I flew to Turkey, and um, and everything was really first class. And I was treated, treat, I was a celebrity. I was treated like a major star. And I was walking through the airport, and the customs and passport control line was packed with. Everyone was hot and tired, and they looked really just miserable. And I was whisked through security, and I was brought straight into a limousine and there were so many people in line and it was just it just seemed like night and day what my experience was compared to all these people and I called my mom from the hotel and I told her that and she's like oh honey that's so great and when I got off the phone I felt so not great I Mm. felt terrible Mm. and I thought I didn't do anything to deserve that I didn't I mean, my boobs are fake, my hair is fake, my teeth are bleached, my tan is fake. I didn't even do anything to get this. Uh, Mm. When I got back to New York where I was living, I quit. Mm. And I said, I really actually want to be an actress. And I left. I asked Bob Guccione, the owner of the magazine, please don't sue me, but I can't do this anymore. And I flew back to Malibu. And uh, a friend of mine was married to Rodney Dangerfield. And I said, can you just help me? I I I was 22. Mm. By the way, I was married at that time and got divorced as well. My first marriage. Wow, that's a lot. I mean, like, yes, that is yes. a lot in a I young I mean, we're like, yes, 22, Mary. I mean, wow. Yeah. So much. Okay, so you had this crisis of, of self, of I'm being celebrated for something that isn't core to my my belief of what's important is that I don't want to put words in your I mouth. Didn't, is that what you're no. is that what you were feeling? It, no, because I didn't even have a core belief yet. Mm. I had instinct and a real sense of self, and I knew that I wasn't hurting anyone, but I had forgotten to ask how it was going to make me feel. Mm. And when I asked myself, how does this feel? I wasn't proud, and it wasn't what I really wanted to do. 
And for, I, I mean, now I didn't have God in my life at the time, but now I think I was being directed out of that uh, because it could have, you know, that was pre-internet, mm. just right before the internet started. And I was getting insane offers to do insane things for insane amount of money. And I had a bar. I, it was a low bar, but I had a bar and I wouldn't cross it. I wouldn't cross that line. The, was the line being valued f- and financially compensated for your work? What was the line? Well, I feel like I was already being valued and paid well, but the line was, I mean, technically the line was, you know, hooking and stripping and porn. That's where it, that's where it goes. That's the natural progression from a nude model. You get into porn. So like straight exploitation. It just goes from. Well, I was already being exploited, but you definitely, it gets worse. It never gets better if you stay in. You don't get promoted to not being naked in front of a camera for money. That's what that is. Right. It stopped making me feel good. It didn't serve me anymore. And so when I got back to L.A., my friend um, introduced me to Rodney's manager, Lloyd, um, who's since died, but he introduced me to an acting coach, and I said I wanted to be taken seriously as an actress, and I had found my flow. I got directly into that, this is what I want to do. And so I studied, and I... um, I wanted to be a serious actress. I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to be trained, and I wanted to get rid of my past as a nude model. And there was no internet, so there was no way anyone could know mm. <laughs> at the time. Mm. That later came my back how to things me, of have course. changed. <laughs> uh, well, that came back to me. My older son, you know, figured it out years later. But so I studied, and then I just auditioned. I was never really discovered. I just worked very hard my entire career and just auditioned and auditioned and met people and I worked and I just worked hard and your first major you landed your first major role doing what my very first movie was a small part I had in the movie Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone Mm -hmm. and it was topless So I was trying to get out of the nude modeling world, but I was still getting cast as sort of the bimbo. But it felt fine because I was at Warner Brothers. (laughs) So it felt a little different, a little step up. Um, And that was my break, not my breakthrough, but that got me my SAG card, my union card, and enabled me to work on bigger shows. And then I did Married with Children. And after that, you know, once you have two really big um, movies or TV shows on your resume, people want to see you. And so they get you in the door. And with my training, you know, it kind of kept me in the room being somewhat um, hireable. I don't know about talented, but I was hireable. (laughs) And so, yeah. Could you feel like the lasting impacts of kind of full figure modeling um, while you were acting? No, I acted like it didn't happen. So it was like, this was the first part of my career in my life. This is the new me. Right. In fact, I was on the cover of a lot of magazines, and as soon as it was off the stands, I was relieved because it would be over then. Oh. Mm. And I still wasn't this... I was still okay with how I was being cast and typecast. I wanted something different, though, so that by the time I did my first series, um, I I starred in a series with Keith Carradine called Fast Track for Showtime. Mm. It was... I was playing a lawyer... It was the days of Melrose Place where Heather Locklear was, you know, I was like, they were casting me as her. So I was, I was serious and I was being cast as a smart, beautiful woman instead of a naked, beautiful woman. And that was game changer for me, that show. Um, 
After that, if I was cast in a role that required nudity, I was a little more confident and mature and had grown up enough to stipulate things in my contract about only from the side or you don't get to see my butt crack, things like that where... I was careful and I was that's that's some serious negotiation there like I do other (laughs) actors have to have to specify that as well or you knew to ask for it because of how people saw you I mean does I uh, does Reese Witherspoon you know have to specify she absolutely does um I had a very um a very a strong female manager who was helping me during that time. Mm. In fact, when when I ended up being on Baywatch, I I was I, I was the athlete on the show. Actually, I wasn't really one of the I was a Baywatch babe, but I wasn't. Um, I was I was playing a kinesiologist, and they wanted me to be the very serious sort of athletic one. And Maxim um, magazine at that time was really big. It was probably the biggest magazine, and they always had you know, the sexiest girl of the world and the top 100 sexy girls. And they offered something to me. And my manager said, no, you don't want to do that. Mm. You don't want to be looked at that way. So she guided me a lot. So when it came down to, you know, side boob and nipples and contract stuff, I had help. I had strong female women in my life who were helping guide me um, out of my old patterns and my old stories that I was okay with and teaching me um, a little bit more about self-respect. Can, can we talk about that for a minute? Because I think that it's something that uh, we women don't talk about a lot, which is how how other women react to your being sexualized and admired for your body as much as for your talent and how you put yourself forward. I mean, girls and women can be mean. I know you now value your close group of female friends um, at the highest level of things that are important to you. But was it always that way? And how did you deal with the judgment and the jealousy? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So my fear of their judgment was worse than their judgment. Mm. Most of the women said to me, if I looked like you, I'd do it too. And that was the biggest surprise for me. Mm. However, there were um, a lot of judge. I got you would get hate mail from women. Um, mm. And, you know, it's funny. I still to this day now, I'm like posing in a bikini, posting, you know, super sexy pictures on Instagram because fuck it. Because you're this gorgeous. Is my, this, yeah. So, I, <laughs> and I'll say this. I, I'm of two minds. Like, I really loved my manager's idea that don't go on Maxim. But there's a part of me that was like, I ruined the best looking years of my life by acting like I wanted to be a serious actress instead of go exploit, use it in this uh, much more mainstream way. Mm-hmm. So I'm still of two minds about it. I still think I should have really busted out and used all of it. And I didn't when I, you know, when I was at that age where I looked my best. I worked a lot as a serious actress, so that was great. Um, but I fear people's judgment. Like, I don't like to be judged. Um, so it was hurtful. It, it, but do you know what the slut walk is? These girls that do the slut walk? Do you know about Not that? Not really. You mean the dance? No, I think it's like these young girls. I'm going to get this so wrong. Um, these young feminists go out and they do these oh, marches. Oh, you're talking about like in New York like- City that like... The transnational movement, it's a feminist movement, right? Uh, you know, to kind yes. of, um, to end rape culture, right? And I think it's, it, it's and, and slut shaming basically of like sexual assault victims, right? I mean, that's, that's right. my, that's so my, a, at least the one in like Toronto and New York. That's what I know. So my take on it, um, aside from the rape culture was, it was about saying, 
I can dress however I want and you don't get to slut shame me. And my very best friend is a staunch feminist and her daughter partakes in the slut walks. Um, and <laughs> to me, I'm like, well, am I allowed to show my boobs and be like, yeah, fuck yeah, this is who I am. Or am I supposed to not because I'm a feminist? It's super confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Your question is great. And I still don't know the answer because am I allowed to be super sexy and be all that I am? Or am I supposed to hide it because I'm a feminist? Or am I a feminist? I am a feminist. Mm. I've learned that now. Mm. But the way that I look at it is as long as I'm being true to myself and I'm really not motivated by doing this strictly to get so much attention from a man, Mm. I think I'm in a safe zone. And because I work so hard and diligently and consistently on my inner life, on my sobriety, on my well-being on my mental health on my generosity and humility and 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 compassion and empathy like all this stuff if i go out and i look my very very hottest or best or sexy that's okay to me that's your power girl take it yeah right um how how is your life different now than it was before i was incredibly ambitious um when i was acting i was working so 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 much and it's all I wanted was to be an actress um and I was doing it and I was a working actress for a very long time and every day I did something for my career today uh, I'm really a full-time mom and I started writing Mm. and I'm motivated by a much different set of values I would still act I'd still work as an actress I read scripts but they have to be really, really good for me to leave my family to go film. Yep. And I'm not doing it now for the approval of others or that applause or that. See, I'm very competitive. So when I audition for a role, I really want it because yeah, I really want to win. <laughs> right. You know, so you like, I win. want that job. I want to win. I yes. want to get that part. Then I get the part and I'm like, now I got to work. <laughs> I, I, but I love the work so much. And I'm more fun. I was ah. so serious all those years. <laughs> I was like the oldest 25-year-old ever and 30-year-old. And oh, I, might, I might be rivaling you with you there. I was like a 100-year-old, like 25-year-old. Oh <laughs> I really was. I was probably all a facade to hide my insecurity and my fear, but I was so... And now I'm just myself. I'm just, I'm just myself, and I'm a little bit more confident. a lot about um, being a mother of independent daughters, probably because I have two strong independent daughters who are now full-fledged independent adults. (laughs) And I think of your mom when you were your serious 22-year-old self and going into Turkey and being whisked through security. And, you know, as a mom, I don't know how I would feel about my still young, gorgeous daughter being a sex symbol. Do, do you guys talk about that? And how did she, how did she deal with it? My mom was so proud of me that she had all of my pictures on her walls. I had to tell her to take them down. I wasn't wearing any clothes. Like she was really. <laughs> She's like, I made those nipples, damn it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> or at least the first version, right? The like... first version. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um, 
she didn't see it that way. My mom was one of the most beautiful women in the world when she was my age, and she um, ended up having children and getting married and having a bunch of trauma on her own. So she didn't really see it like, I don't like this. She was proud of me and um, always, always supported me. That's, that's awesome. Brandy, I want to ask you a bit about your sobriety journey. Um, you know, most people don't know. I didn't start drinking until I was 37 years old because I had a lot of Whew. alcoholism in my family <laughs> growing up. Um, so I saw really negative images of alcohol and, and had to make a personal choice, uh, you know, older in my life that, that alcohol was going to work for me. Um, tell me a little bit about your childhood and, and did alcohol play a part in, in that world? So I'll tell you that just what you said, that you made a personal choice you're definitely not an alcoholic, I think, <laughs> if I could say that. <laughs> Alcoholics don't have a choice. Alcoholics don't have a choice. You take a drink and the whole drink takes over. So um, just I just had to say that because, yes, when you grow up with alcohol around, it's, um, it's really, really, really challenging growing up in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a really bad alcoholic for a really long time, t- terrible blackout, car accidents, jail. This is terrible growing up in that way. But regardless of that, anything that happened to me in my childhood and my life didn't make me an alcoholic. I think we are just born that way. And I just had that alcoholic gene. So mm-hmm. by the time I was 11, I was smoking pot with my girlfriends. And by the time I was 14, I started drinking and using cocaine. And that never stopped for 10 years. Um, mm. My mom ended up getting sober 24 years ago and has not had a drop of alcohol since then. Um, and that was incredible, but that was really hard. I had to set some clear boundaries with her around that. Uh, and then she mm-hmm. stopped drinking. But I, on the other hand, at that time, was not sober. Um, and it took me a really long time. I was 25 and doing a lot of cocaine and drinking and working in these big shows. I was starring in a Aaron Spelling um, really fun pilot TV show. Uh, and I had sex with my co-star and I got pregnant and Mm -hmm. I was drunk all the time. And I was working on a TV show when I realized that I was probably pregnant. I had my driver take me to the store and get me a pregnancy test. And I found out on location in my hotel room. And I said, oh, I have to stop drinking. And I was smoking cigarettes. I said, oh, I didn't think of having an abortion, although I had had one. And it was just this child's going to be born. I'm having this baby. And Mm. um, I quit drinking and I quit smoking and I never did cocaine again because I was pregnant. So we had the baby. We ended up getting married. He's a really big actor now, Martin Cummins. Um, But I really wasn't in any kind of 12-step program. I didn't really have any extra tools on how to deal with life sober. Mm. I just Mm -hmm. didn't drink alcohol. Um, I used work and then my husband and I got divorced. So then I used men as my addiction and, Mm. and money. And so I really spent 10 years not drinking, but still being, um, we call it dry drunk. So I was operating from a sense of self, not connecting to a higher power. I had since found God, but I wasn't using God as my higher power. I was using work and money and men. Yeah. That's the misconception I think about addiction is people think that like, oh, well it's, I mean, it doesn't have to be 
to a substance, right? It could be <laughs> right. to an activity, right? And, and I think a lot of, um, certainly in North America, a lot of people are addicted to really challenging things. Well, absolutely. And it's not because you're putting anything in your body. It's just that your body's creating that serotonin and that uh, those endorphins are released. My God, when I shop, (laughs) when I shop. (laughs) Yeah. I think I had that shopping addiction for many years. Oh, I still do. It's a, it's an effort, (laughs) but you know, um, yeah. So anyway, so a lot of stuff happened to me during that 10 years, 12, 10 or 12 years. Um, and I'd met my now husband, um, and I was going through a lot of stuff with my older son, and I relapsed. And this was 10 years ago. I relapsed um, on pain pills. I had a surgery uh, maybe six months prior, and I had extra pain pills lying around. And I was going through a lot of emotional stuff, and I had no support. I had support. I have really good friends, but I wasn't really being honest with them about what was going on in my life. So how much can they really support me? Plus, I wasn't working any kind of program. I didn't have any tools. I didn't rely on my higher power. I was just on my own making decisions for myself. And I get fight or flight. I get very... I'm in a survival mode, you know, that amygdala part of my brain kicks in and the, the reptile brain, and I just... Mm-hmm. charge and make all these wrong decisions and that's where I was headed so did, w- did you realize you were doing that at the time nope. you know you obviously were at a low point nope. so you didn't say I just have to do this I I give in no I literally got in a huge fight with my older son over the phone and when he hung up on me I said well I'm in pain I have pain pills I need to do this I did it, and then about a month later, I said, you know, I can start drinking like a lady now. I'm in a different place in my life, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that never happened. And I the drank. cycle began. <laughs> and the cycle mm-hmm. progressively went straight down. And mm-hmm. so for about a year, I and I didn't tell anyone, so I was secretly drinking and using drugs, uh, pain pills, consistently, uh, daily. And I was making... Um, really just worse and worse decisions in my life. And it ended up progressively getting worse quickly. And uh, I ended up in the hospital. I had been dragged out of my house on a stretcher, handcuffed Mm. to the gurney, because I had been um, threatening to kill myself. So the police came and ambulance came and they did a welfare check. And calmed me down with lorazepam and my best friend looked at me and she said you got to get help you got to get help they didn't know they didn't know I was doing Mm -hmm. this right and so they were shocked but also I was I was dying and I wanted to die Mm. and the next day um, I went to rehab for three months and I learned about Mm. alcoholism and I learned about the effect that it produces on your body and I learned how to make amends and I learned how to come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I felt insane, but I also learned forgiveness, self-forgiveness. I really, really learned about all the resentments I had, all the justifications I had for behaving this way because I was blaming others. I had a part in every single one of them, even the ones I didn't at all think I had a part in. And I just learned a set of tools and a a, a set of spiritual tools that to this day helped me because once you eliminate alcohol, your problems don't go away and everything doesn't just get better. You know, you you still have to deal with all the other stuff. You still have to. And so if your coping mechanism is drugs and alcohol and that's taken away, what are you going to lean to? You're going to do something, you know, you need to replace it. I needed to replace it with something that was actually going to work. 
And so, yeah. And you, you, you use the right terms, right? Like you called pain pills drugs. hundred percent. Right? They are. Um, I had surgeon surgery recently and I had to take pain pills. And so today what I'll do, because I'm a pill addict, I love pain pills. I'd never want to get addicted to them again. I tell like mm. five people, you know, my sponsor, my mentor, my best friend, my husband, um, my mom, I'm like, okay, my doctor, of course, here's the thing. I need to take these only when I'm in pain. So you hold the bottle, you dole them out when I need them. And then we're going to be real accountable about this because I'm going to get addicted if we're not careful, you know? It's probably scary. It's probably very scary to know that you need help managing actual mm-hmm. post-surgical pain. Yeah. But knowing that too much of that help will set you back so far. So that, far. That, that other emotional pain is worse. You know what? And I'll die. It won't send me back. I'll die for sure because I see how progressive it is. It's scary. It also sucks to be a a drug addict (laughs) like you know when I'm in a little bit of pain my first thought is a pain pill when you're in a little bit of pain you might think to take an Advil like I'm constantly bothered by this and I have found the only way to really nip it in the bud is to acknowledge it be honest about it deal with it so get help get help and And so be transparent transparent. you have to say like here's what's happening and that's really new for me so another answer to your question about how am I different now it's really was hard for me I never asked for help I wanted you to think I had it all I have a perfectionism character defect I wanted you to think I knew everything and I had it all together and today I'm able to say like I don't know how to do this alone I need help Brandy, you know, one of the things about you that's so incredibly impressive is how transparent you are. And we, we, we talk um, a lot about living your life out loud. Mm-hmm. And you have done that more than anyone we've talked to. <laughs> Whether you're saying, yes, I at first got hired, but the boobs were fake, to um, <laughs> here's, here's where, I, you know, even at the, my pinnacle of acting success, I was a hot mess behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. To now, you know, you're you're this gorgeous woman who who does not look like her fifty something. Gorgeous years. on the outside and the inside. St- yes, absolutely. And and you're willing to say to people, um, you know, what you see is not the whole story. And here is the whole story. I think this is just so incredibly refreshing. But how did you have the confidence? Because we're all so insecure and want to be seen as fabulous perfect humans of course none of us are how did you how did you get this way and how do we do it <laughs> I want to learn thank you for starters it means a lot to me I released shame from my life and mm. when I was feeling shame and living with shame I hid everything and I learned how to release some shame. I learned how to reparent myself. Um, I learned how to forgive myself. And it helped me be true to, to myself and it helped me be honest about who I am because I actually, my whole life, just wanted to be loved and accepted, but I was pretending to be something I wasn't. So if I was loved and accepted, it wasn't for who I was. And I found that to be a dead end and a real uh, problem for any level of happiness or joy I was going to have in my life. 
more recently in my last eight and a half years of sobriety, I have to be real. Um, I'm not perfect. I still am super, have just a ton of character defects and a lot of stuff I'm always working on. But if I can be anything safely, it's transparent. And I want to normalize honesty because this is all we got. You know, my whole Instagram is Photoshopped and fucking fake. So the center of my Instagram, (laughs) are you serious? So your 40 something thousand followers don't care because they like what they see. I'm happy for them to see me. They want the eye candy girl. It's okay. They can have it. You know why they can have it? (laughs) Here's why they can have my the eye, me as the eye candy because I'm real with my words. So yeah. you know I like to be real on the inside about who I am. Um, that way I feel really good about being photoshopped. <laughs> as you think about the way you want people to talk about you as your legacy, what you want to leave behind, you know I feel like you're just coming into that now that that's become um, a focus and a platform. But can you talk about? What's the legacy that, that, you know, not only your kids, but your, um, your audience and the world will have as a result of you being on this earth? I would love for them to th- think of me as someone who encouraged them to be their best selves. Mm. Um, someone who really fought and persistently came out on the other side. Um, with kindness and empathy and care. Hot damn! Brandy really lets her true self shine. And I don't just mean as a centerfold. She is the (laughs) real deal. (laughs) And I really respect her for speaking so openly about her struggles and her mistakes, as well about the fact that she still feels sexy at 50. She is. loud is she ever. Yes. She is Spicy, spicy, hot, hot, hot. This is real life, people. Now, let's see what you all had to ask her. Here come community questions. Hey, this is Natalie from San Diego. I was wondering, what was it like auditioning for roles when you were first starting out your career? It was really nerve-wracking, and I would use that nervous energy to give my character the energy it needed. It was fun, though, too, and... I'm sure at the time I was just crazy nervous, but right now I look back on it like, God, I was so lucky. I didn't know I was lucky at the time, though, but it was nerve-wracking. So was it nerve-wracking because you were, you know, nervous to get the role or because of the the way that auditions are run or both? (laughs) Uh, Neither. I wanted to do a really good job, and I would be afraid if Mm. I didn't. I see. I see. Perfection moments that so many of us have. <laughs> yes, Toxic perfectionism. Yes. But, you know, also I want to be good at what I'm doing because I want to get the job. I want to be yes. right for the role. But I wasn't nervous when I got in the room. Prior to the okay. audition, I'd be nervous. Walking onto the lot, you know, going to the Paramount Studios, I'm like scared to death. But then I st- I mean, I'm like Brandy Ledford comes out when I get in the room and the character <laughs> comes in. And I'm full on. Like, I work. Yeah. I'm like, Brandy is here. (laughs) On that kind of realm with auditions, I'm sure, just like, you know, every actor, um, you audition, you audition. Sometimes you get it. Oftentimes you don't because there's just so many. How did you stay positive and not get discouraged? Oh, I got discouraged all the time. I hated not getting the role. Um, Mm. But I would give myself, um, managed my expectations. uh, So, out of every 10 auditions, I'd get one. 
And so I knew mm -hmm. that meant nine I'm not going to get. So I can't be discouraged nine times like that. Why I would stop. I would quit. So you just right. look at the you just look at the numbers. You just know what's real and what's not. And always they would cast somebody not like me. So then I'd end up feeling better. Like they'd want a brunette mm -hmm. or they'd want somebody not as cute or somebody more famous. And then it, ju it justifies. You know, it was never because I wasn't good enough. It was that I wasn't right for the part. I produced right. a play early on in my career, and I, I cast thousands of people. I looked at thousands of actresses, and there was mm -hmm. one lady who was right for the part. And you just she walked in, she was right for the part, and I hired her. And wow. having had that experience, um, I produced a movie, same thing, too. You just see there's people who are right for the part, so you don't take it personally. But it was always discouraging. I wanted certain I, I auditioned for a James Bond film. My girlfriend Denise got it, and I oh. wanted it. I wanted oh. it so bad. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Uh, you could totally be a Bond girl. I can see that. Right? Hey, Brandy. I'm Georgia from Cardiff in the UK, and I'd love to know who are your favorite actors and who have you most enjoyed working with? Oh, my favorite Ooh. actress is Jessica Lange, for sure. Ooh, nice. um, mm. Yeah. My mm. favorite today actress, uh, you know, current actress, more modern. I don't know. There's so many. I'm loving Riz Ahmed right now. I just watched... Um, I'm, he's getting my vote for the awards. Mm. Uh, the Sound of Metal, which I highly recommend. Mm. He is okay. mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> The Sound of Metal. Movie night. Um, my favorite actors to work with, um, I really liked uh, Rowan Atkinson. I did a movie called Rat Race. And yes, Vicky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course. The best, most badass call girl ever. Ever, right? See, I ended up being Hijacks a call girl after thing. all. <laughs> I ended up being a call girl after all. <laughs> but I, oh my god, I just realized. Yes, you did, but you did it on your own terms, which is dude. You know, I did it uh, for Sony for Sony Pictures, and I got paid a hell of a lot more money. But I loved uh, Rowan Atkinson um, on that. He was so kind and humble and gentle and sweet Aww. to me. Ty Burrell is another one I truly loved. I loved uh, working with Keith Carradine. Keith Carradine and I did twenty six mm -hmm. episodes of a show and. Every day was a treat. Um, one of my best friends um, I met on Baywatch, and she's still one of my really good friends. And so, of course, I got to say her because 20 years mm -hmm. later, we're still friends. I'm wondering how, like, being both sexualized, but also just really being in the limelight and being a celebrity in general has affected your relationships throughout your life. I've lost some girlfriends from it starting out as an actress they didn't really become actors and I was working all the time and mm. succeeding and getting married and having children and so Those we didn't end up staying friends, friends. um yeah, yeah. like Same I said I, I may be a sex symbol but my two very best friends are the most staunch feminist they're both smart the most educated mm -hmm. yeah. best schools in this country you know they're the girls that love me so I don't think sex symbolism has hurt. But you yes. can be a sex symbol and that's what I'm saying. Yes. You got to redefine. Oh, so yeah. Good. Well, clearly, because I have that. <laughs> anyone who, who, you know, like you mentioned, anybody who decided that they couldn't see that, couldn't accept it, that, that's their thing. <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with who that's you are. Right. It's, it's their ability to share your success and, right. you know, strength. Yes. And so. Me being all of who I am and being more, I, I, I don't have a sex symbol, but sex positive. I'm very sex positive, very sexual, oh! happy. 
We love that here, Brandy. You know we do. <laughs> yeah, so good. <laughs> Hi, I'm Susan from Carmel Valley, and I think it's so clever that you choose to keep your private life and marriage off of social media. Why did you decide to do that? Mm. Uh, yeah, so I do like to say I'm happy to share my personal life, which is my sobriety, my um, mm-hmm. everything having to do with me and my friendships, um, even my older son, because he's given me consent and he has his own Instagram page. So I talk about him. Mm-hmm. My private life is my husband, my young son. I have a seven year old and those are off limits. Um, uh, I don't like attacks from, um, from people about my, my life in general. Right. I don't like mm-hmm. to be attacked. I don't like to have any sort of trolls sure. risk. Um, but my husband's really private, and he just prefers to stay that way. My seven-year-old son has not given me consent to post a picture of him on social media. I understand everyone exploits their children for likes on social media, and their kids are freaking cute, and everybody posts cute pictures of their kids. But I'm not sure those kids, when they're adults, are going to like all that. So yeah. I have literally the cutest seven-year-old boy on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I would love to show the world how freaking cute he is and all the videos. And I take pictures of him all day. But, like, I don't have his consent to do that. Yeah. Also, I think it's really, I put so much out there. I got to keep something for myself. And my family is sacred. Yeah. That's beautiful. You know that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover? Brandy is the proof of why that is so true. She's so real and authentic that even after just a short chat, I feel like I really got to know her. Me too. I have mad respect for her journey, self-love included. And I mean, the original Baywatch. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. If you want more moments of real conversation that dig deep, subscribe to Bring a Friend podcast and join us at Parlay House. Yes, Parlay House is a global community having conversations about the topics that we don't get to talk about in other parts of our lives, like this one. Go to P-A-R-L-A-Y house.com. That's A-Y like A to learn more. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And don't forget to join us again here next week. I'm Ann Devereaux Mills. I'm Arielle Fuller. And I'm Adamika Arthur. We'll see you again (laughs) next week. And please bring a friend. If it seems life is heavy, just pull up a seat. I've been looking for someone to me. I've got stories I can talk about. Bring a Friend was produced by us, Triple A, with a whole lot of help from our all-girls superstar team, Eliza Mills and Daisy Palacios. Our delightful music and theme song were created by the talented duo Exes, fronted by Ali McDonald. Learn more and get in touch at bringafriendpodcast.com. See you next week.